Second Corinthians chapter 8. These are God's words. Let us receive them as such. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit or to remember the, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their record I bear, for, to their power rather, I bear record. Yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye, be, and ye burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into, your, into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us uh, with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance, which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom ye have, uh, we have some t oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Amen. May God bless his word. As it is read, let us pray for the preaching to be blessed now. Father, we now come before the word of God and we come to hear it preached. And we ask that your minister would do this faithfully, that he would do it gravely, that he would do it wisely, that he would do it with a love both for God and for the hearers. And we know in a subject that is fraught with much peril when it comes to our finances, Lord. We pray that we would, uh, we would receive the word of God as it is in truth the very word of God and that you would help your minister not preach opinions about money and finances and giving and charity, but instead what it is that the Spirit intends to communicate to the churches of God. And we pray that the hearts of all who would hear now would be open to the message of the Holy Ghost and that we ourselves would be moved, would be moved, Father, to love and care for our neighbor, especially those in the church. And so, Father, we pray to those ends, that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, the grace would be given, that I should preach among your congregation those unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this for Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one famous minister of old famously said this, that the last part of the man to be converted is his wallet. 
I hesitate to say that is always true because obviously the Lord in many of us works different graces. Some, are come, some come to the Lord and immediately they are uh, cheerful and generous in their giving. But for many of us, it is the case that our wallet is really the last part of our uh, spiritual life to be converted. And you see that throughout the scripture, don't you? The rich young ruler is a principal and prime example of that. He found all the other commandments a breeze, supposedly, right? He did. But covetousness, which is idolatry, is where he said, this far and no further, right? When it came to giving up his goods, that's where the man said, I can no longer follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that, we have to remember, is that mammon is an idolatrous God in this world. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, verse 24. And what you have to understand, believer, is that often money has a stranglehold over our hearts, right? Is that not why the apostle looked at the root of all evil and said it is the love of money, right? In our world, you are taught from a very tender age, where is your security found? It is in your bank account, isn't it? Right? Uh, this is even, we'll, we'll come to children, right, in our series on marriage, but uh, in, on the family, rather. But you are often scared from having children. Why? Because they cost so much, right? In other words, what, are they, what is the world, what is the society doing? It's saying that money is your greatest good, and everything else, right, is subservient to money because your security itself is found in money, But what does the Bible say is our security? It is God. God is our security. Our Lord Jesus Christ always challenged the notion that our security is found in our wealth. To a man who would think his wealth would be a security, what would Jesus say? Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's what the Lord would say to the man who finds his security in money. Thou fool. Our security, our hope, and our God is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. And if we would remember that, we would find giving to his people and giving to his cause, giving to his kingdom to be very easy indeed. We would even find it to be our joy as the Macedonian, the poor Macedonians of our text did. Well, we're going to consider this text tonight because over the next two Lord's Days, the session has authorized a collection for a congregation in need within our presbytery. And while our text shows us that we have a duty to this kind of thing, what I want and what the sermon will be more broadly is to help us to understand the right use of our resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. Right? Where do our resources fit in the, in our spiritual life? And what we often forget, and we've been reminded of this in the family series, is that practical things, according to the will of God, is still an exercise of our faith. We exercise our religion in how we steward our finances, in how we give to others, and how we look after the needs of others, as well as the needs of ourselves. This is all an exercise of religion and faith in Jesus Christ. And so with that before us, our theme is our need to cultivate a desire to help Christ's people, even with our finances. Our need to cultivate a desire to help Christ's people, especially with our finances. And we'll consider this under three heads. First is to reflect on the poverty of the Macedonians. Second is to rejoice in the grace of the Savior. And third is to understand the practice of the church. Those three headings on your bulletin. First, the poverty of the Macedonians. And I think what we need to do is we need to recall what is behind this text contextually. Paul uh, and boys and girls, uh, children, what is wonderful about the Bible is it is real history. This is not mythology. Everything in the Bible is true and has happened. And what Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, this is a letter to the Corinthians, is he is reminding them of the history of the Jerusalem church, the mother church. 
This church, the Jerusalem church, which was the mother of the Christian church, had fallen into great need during a famine in Judea. You remember that Agabus had prophesied of this famine in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So there's going to be a famine, almost like in the days of Joseph, right, upon the known earth. And as that text continues, we find the church's response in Acts 11, 29 through 30. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, and we'll come back to that later, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So there is a famine The church in Judea is in need, and the disciples are determined, right? They're determined to help and send relief through the church. And the Macedonian churches, as Paul reminds us here in 2 Corinthians 8, participated in this collection. Romans 15 is even more clear. Romans 15, 26. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So all of this, right, the Bible testifies to all of this history here, which is behind our text, which is helpful to know. Now, as we think on the Macedonian churches, you might not know, children, which churches these are, so it might be helpful for you to understand which churches they are from the testimony of the Bible, right? You might know them by other names. Um, the, the churches of Macedonia were churches in northern Greece. Uh, you remember them in your Bible, boys and girls, as the Philippians, the Bereans, and the Thessalonians. These are the churches that are being referred to in the region of Macedonia. And what do you know of these three churches? They receive the greatest commendations, don't they, in the New Testament? Congregations that are very spiritually quite rich, aren't they? Paul called the Philippians, my brethren dearly beloved and longed for my joy and crown. Of the Thessalonians, Paul said, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. And if those were the Thessalonians, right? Remember what the Holy Ghost said of the Bereans in Acts 17. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Now, these are not perfect churches. You know that, right? You read the Thessalonians and the Philippians. They all needed God's help in the epistles. But what you see here are these are congregations. These are churches that are spiritually quite rich. But what you learn about here in 2 Corinthians 8 is that materially, on the other hand, they were very poor. These were poor churches. And so Paul tells the Corinthians to remember the example of the Macedonians in our first two verses. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of, that is, remember, the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Now, we always ask, why is this text here in the scriptures? Is this just written for the Corinthians? No, of course not. It is written for us that we and all the churches of Christ are called to remember the example of the Macedonians and to be conformed to it. This is not, in other words, though there is history here, boys and girls, this is not a history lesson for you, but this is a lesson of faith and practice instead. A text that shows how we might exercise our religion. This is a spiritual exercise, in other words, that we would give to those in need. Now, what makes the Macedonian example so commendable was their condition, that they themselves were in deep poverty, as verse 2 says. Now, what you probably know about the Corinthian church is that this is a rich church, isn't it? The Corinthians, uh, most believe, were a rich church, but the Macedonians, who gave so abundantly, were not a rich church, and they gave liberally anyhow. And maybe even more astonishing than that is that they gave in the midst of their own affliction. Verse 2 says, in a great trial of affliction. 
They remembered their suffering brethren. You know, the Thessalonians, we remember that this was spoken of them directly. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So these are brethren who suffered much for the gospel. They, they suffered persecution. They suffered imprisonment. They suffered the confiscation of their goods. You think of all the texts in the Bible that testify to these things. And yet... They had a deep abiding joy in what the Lord had done for them, right? And this is where we, we find that we have to calibrate our thoughts, right? If, if, if the world confiscated all of our goods, would we still think of ourselves as the richest people of all? If the world came and they, they took away all, there's a law passed. Any Christian has to have all of their goods confiscated. And don't think that this doesn't happen in the world, mind you. Would you still have deep abounding joy and say we are still the richest people of all because we have Christ? That we wretched sinners, even the chief, fully and freely forgiven of all my crimes against God, the blood of Christ as we saw this morning, cleansing me from every stain and spot of sin, that I would be reconciled to God, that I would be an heir of God, that joy of the Holy Ghost poured into my heart, into my heart. I would still... I'm called to still have great joy seeing myself rich in Christ. And it is that joy that moves them to be generous. It is that joy that moves them to not think on themselves, but on others in their trial. I am taken care of. I have God the Father. I have a sure inheritance. My Savior has said He has gone to prepare a place for me that I will dwell with Him forever. I am taken care of. I am worth more than many sparrows to the Lord. And he has proven it on the cross. That's the joy that causes us to be so generous, isn't it? And it showed in their liberality in verse 2, the abundance of their joy. Do you see that? This is where generosity begins. Abundance of joy in the gospel. An abundance of joy in what Christ has done. And their deep poverty, mixed with the abundance of their joy, abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Where would you find these two things collide but in the gospel? An abundance of joy with poverty producing what do those two things mix and produce? Liberality. So what you have to learn as well, that deep poverty And afflictions and trials are no obstacle to being generous. Not if you are full of the joy of the Holy Ghost. See, what we do is we don't give to earn merit with Christ, right? This is the problem of the papacy, right? Is you give and you earn merit. No, we don't give to earn merit with Christ. Instead, out of the joy of the Lord, the joy of his salvation, we give freely. Freely we have received And freely we give. That is why you remember even in the Old Covenant, right? In Leviticus 7, there were free will offerings. Why were those offerings given? They're not obligatory. You give them because of what the Lord has done for you. This is why those offerings were given. Um, This is the principle that is also in view with the collection that we undertake. That we give these things freely because of the joy of the Lord. We'll return to that principle in our second heading. But as we consider the Macedonian example, let's consider verses 3 and 4 and see what a people taken by the gospel are like with their purse strings. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power or ability, they were willing of themselves. See, there's that willingness. Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. As in the free will offering, they were willing to give all of what they had. Uh, The text here says beyond their ability, beyond what they had. That's how willing the Lord had made them. Uh, And it's so striking, isn't it? The apostles, they balk at the gift. It's like, you are in deep poverty. What are you doing giving so generously? And what do the Macedonians do? They beg, take this Minister to the saints in Jerusalem. Stop protesting. Take our money. Take our goods. And if you had to, take our lives. It all belongs to the Savior anyway. 
How could we ever repay him anyhow? You know, when the grace of the Lord works mightily upon us, this is its fruit, isn't it? You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, a few chapters back, right, what did the Corinthians hear from Paul? And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that which died for them and rose again. And one of the ways we live for Christ is to live for and serve the body of Christ, his church. And as we meditate on these things and these things are driven into our hearts, our love for our own riches decreases. But what love increases? Our love for what riches can do for others increases. You know, our treasure is no longer found in the world and the things of the world. Our treasure is stored, as our Lord Jesus Christ said, is in heaven where moth and rust and thieves cannot get to those treasures. Such a mind is the mind of those who have an interest in the communion of the saints. In verse 4, the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You know, part of our fellowship, as you heard this morning, is ministering to one another. Right? That, that's, that's the communion of the saints. We minister to one another. And such a fellowship as Presbyterians, we understand this. It transcends the local congregation. We care for all of us here, yes, and we have to. But we also care for brethren outside of these four walls, for we are all brethren. We have an obligation to other churches. And as Presbyterians, we have covenanted to care for those in our presbytery and beyond. We are not disassociated churches. We are a part of one universal, small-c Catholic church, and we are all kindred. No matter where we find our kindred, we are to look out for them. And that's what the Macedonians did. They didn't say, well, we're in Macedonia, we're in Thessalonica, we're in Berea, we're in Philippi. Why do we care about the church in Jerusalem? Let Jerusalem care about Jerusalem, and we will care about ourselves. No, we are all bound together as one church. And so with that as context for what is happening in our text, let's consider next the grace of the Savior. Now, as you have picked up on this, the heart of the Macedonians was all of the grace of God. Flesh and blood will never give you this desire, but God and his grace will. This is a very simple but necessary truth to remember. Consider the first verse again. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Their liberal disposition was a testimony of the grace of God that he bestowed, he gave to them. You know, what is interesting here, though, is there are many dimensions to this grace. The more I meditated on this text, the more fascinating that became, right? There's at least a twofold grace here. They were bestowed a generous heart. That's the gift of God. It's the grace of God in that way. But also, this is a grace that was given to Jerusalem by the grace given to the Macedonians, right? The grace given to Jerusalem comes by way of grace given to the Macedonians. Jerusalem received grace, the gift of God, through this giving, through the grace given to the Macedonians. And what we have to remember is that everything we receive is a gift from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17. Now, this is how you must approach even your own possessions, right? All that I have is the gift of God. They are God's gifts to me, and I must look at them that way. We often think of the things that we have as, I earned this, I deserve this, this is mine. Instead, we don't see it as a gift from God. This is why we pray for our daily bread. So if there's a twofold grace, I actually thought on this even more. There's a threefold grace here, right? What the Macedonians had materially is for the grace of God. Their disposition to give it is the grace of God, and the Jerusalem church's reception of it is the grace of God. In so many ways, the grace of God is found throughout this text. And in fact, there is a fourfold grace here. For in the giving, the Macedonians also received the grace or the blessing of God in that. What did our Lord Jesus Christ say? In Acts 20, verse 25, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, 
and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said what? I suspect we all know this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you see how grace just fills this text? How in one action of giving, in how we support the weak, we receive the blessing of God. They receive the blessing of God. And in so many ways, God blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses uh, in acts of service and giving. And when we remember that, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We're not expecting that, right? The Lord is going to shower us, as the prosperity preachers say, with more wealth and money. But instead, we remember that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Oh, beloved, when you, when you work in this way, you know, by the grace of God to give, you share closer communion with the Lord. I suspect if you've ever given, especially sacrificially, to the Lord's cause, you know that the Lord's face shines upon you as in the benediction. Giving to brethren in need, especially, is full of the shining face of God. You remember when he said that when you gave, when he visited me in prison and he gave me a cup of water to drink, you did it unto me, right? When we give to the least of these, his brethren, we are doing it for Christ and how he blesses us in that. Our God is a God that delights in working grace through his people, especially as he gives them a generous heart. And faith must believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. The more we believe this, brethren, the less tightly we will have a control over our purse strings when it comes to acts of charity. And we will find that the Lord's face shines upon us in manifold ways. But for your further consideration, there is a great exemplar in our text. He who is the greatest benefactor of all. Who is it, boys and girls? Did you remember who it is in this text? In verse 9, it's the Lord Jesus. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. This is what moves the heart of every Christian in their giving is to remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he, who is utterly satisfied, totally blessed, perfectly happy, filled with all blessings, immutable, infinite, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, eternally residing in the love and bosom of the Father, God blessed over all. What did he do having all things? He made himself a servant. He took on a human nature. And what kind of servant did he become? He became a suffering servant. He became poor. Now, any human is poor in contrast to God. Even uh, the, the most righteous man, even Job, right, is poor in contrast to God. But he became especially poor. Was he born into Herod's palace? No, his crib was a manger. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Then he suffered reproach. He endured the contradiction of sinners. He suffered shame. He suffered pain, all in his humanity. Why did he do it? Why did he become poor in such ways? What does our text say? For your sakes, he became poor. For what? intended purpose believer, that ye through his poverty might be rich. We considered this when we considered Second Peter 1.4 a couple of Lord's days ago and the promises of God, that we in Christ are the richest people of all. Not materially, but spiritually. No one has what we have. We are rich, beloved, who else is given that precious blood that pays off all our debts to God? The richest man outside of Christ owes God an infinite debt that he can never pay. You are filled with the riches of Christ so that all of your debt is paid in full. A debt no man can pay. Jesus, though, had to become poor for your sake that we might be rich in having all that treasure and having our poverty erased. Who else is given a New Testament in Christ's blood as the cup comes before us in two weeks? 
Jesus became poor. He had to die so that we might inherit all that is God's. Who else, as we think on Ezekiel 16, has had their filthy, sinful garments replaced with the perfect robes of righteousness? What is that worth to the believer? That should be worth everything to the believer. That ours is a righteousness, unspotted, unspoiled. But what did Jesus have to do? He had to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Who else has become kings and priests unto God? Jesus had to become poor for us and wash us from our sins in his own blood to do that. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 1, verse 6. Who else has a room prepared in heaven to commune with God eternally that we might share in God's eternal happiness? Jesus had to come down and be the man of sorrows that we would have eternal blessedness before us. You know, we can go on and on, and I I could easily preach a sermon or 10 on this theme. We are so rich, beloved. And maybe that is a sermon Uh, meditation and maybe a series to consider the riches of Christ bestowed to his people. We are the richest people of all that ever will be. Not because we live in America and that we do, even though the poorest one of us is in the 90th percentile, you know, in the upper percentile rather, of all the people who've ever lived. No, we are rich spiritually. And it was not our doing, but Christ's. And it only happened because he became poor for our sake. And so when we meditate on what the Lord is to us and what he has done for us, that we are debtors to his mercy, that if he were a selfish God, you think on this, right? If he were not a giving God, if he were a selfish God, I would never be saved at all. Who would want to give me anything? I am a sinner and I am not good even to the people closest to me, much less God Almighty. And if he were selfish... I would never have the manifold blessings that I enjoy. And when I think on that, we give ourselves to him all the more and we give ourselves more to his people. Verse five, first they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. I've preached on that before, but I'll just put that before for your remembrance. When we know what Christ is to us, we give ourselves to God and then to his people as well. And so brethren, all that said, in verse seven, we find the need to abound in this grace of giving. Now, for a Reformed church, as we were challenged this morning, I think this is a key verse to recall in verse 7. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also, meaning the grace of giving. You know, we are often desirous, right, of abounding in these graces, in faith, utterance, knowledge, diligence. He says, add to that, giving. Right? We often can be very proud of our learning that we spend a lot of time in the apostolic doctrine, as you heard this morning, and in systematic theology and everything else. And this is good. This is a grace from God. And we love to speak of the things that God has to say. But we have to add to that love And we have to add to love the grace of giving as well. We cannot say that my faith, and we have to rid this thought, believers, my faith solely rests upon my learning. You are to abound in other graces as well. Now in verse 8, the apostle says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Now what the apostle says, I speak not by way, he's not speaking of God's commandments. He's saying, I'm speaking not to compel you. I am not trying to say, you must give to Jerusalem. He is not compelling anyone. What does he want? He wants this giving freely to be done from the heart. And he says that when we give to our brethren, we prove what? Think on this. We prove the sincerity of our love. James has something to say on that as well, as you probably know. 
We say we love our neighbor, and we must. That's the second part of the great commandment. But he asks, can you not prove the sincerity of your love? You know, that's the interpretation of Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, which, you know, we often like to, to, to quote that um, God loves a cheerful giver, right? One who gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. That's not a text on tithing. But you see from our text context in chapter 8, a text on special giving to the brethren, which proves the sincerity of our love by giving not because we are compelled to. And the elders here, this is all optional giving when it comes to giving to our brethren in, uh, in Missouri. It is to prove, though, uh, the challenge that the word of God has, not saying you must give to this particular cause, but in any times that we consider giving to our brethren, it is a proof of the sincerity of our love that we give, not out of compulsion, but cheerfully. That God's grace, as it opens our heart, our open heart leads to open pocketbooks. Now, I want to spend some time remedying some fears we have in our giving. And that's often the case why we will not charitably give. And I don't, I think if you struggle in this way, perhaps a meditation on Psalm 37 would be of help to you. And I just want to bring, before you can turn there in your copy of God's Word, because I'll read several verses, but if you don't turn there, I will be reading. Um, beginning in verses 16 through 19. I think, especially as recently we have considered the meditation of the promises of God, a psalm like Psalm 37 really settles our soul. It's verses 16 through 19. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall uh, not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. You just think of the truths there. That the little that the righteous has is better than the riches of many wicked. You can take the little that you have, believer, and you can say, according to this text, and you must believe this, that the little that you have is better than all the accumulated wealth of all of the Silicon Valley billionaires. It really is. Your inheritance shall be forever because it is in heaven above. And in the days of famine, you will be upheld by the Lord and you will be satisfied. He promises when famine comes, you will be taken care of because your security is not in your stuff. Your security is in the Lord's hand. And that is what Elon Musk does not have. But you do. A God who holds his people in, their, in his hand and is the God of providence. He upholds us, not our wealth. Do you understand that, beloved? that he upholds you. Verses 20 through 22. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume, and to smoke shall they consume away. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth. The righteous are defined by showing mercy and they give. And they will inherit the earth. Where have you heard that before, right? The Beatitudes. Now, the thing to keep in mind is this. The psalm is not speaking of those who are prodigal, right? Boys and girls, in other words, those who are wasteful. He's not talking about go waste all your stuff and the Lord will take care of you in famine. No, he's speaking to those who are generous, even in their poverty. Verse 25 to 26, may this comfort you, especially parents. I have been young and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. You see, the promise that your children will be taken care of, believer, is to the one who is merciful and lends freely. Right? That's a promise you can hold on to from God. The promise isn't to the one who accumulates and stores his wealth without giving, you won't find a promise like that. But what you do find in the Bible is a promise that he who is merciful and lends, his seed is blessed. Blessed, we trust first and foremost with the knowledge of Christ, but also that they will not be begging bread. This is what we have to hold on to and to allay our fears. 
And so where does the Lord want our energy spent? Fretting on our possessions? No, verses 27 through 28. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. He says, don't worry about your possessions, really. You worry about following the Lord and he will not forsake his saints. Have you not heard that in the New Testament in Matthew 6, 33, which we dwell on many times? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these will be added unto you. How many ways, in other words, how many witnesses out of the scripture do we need to be a merciful and generous people that will always be taken care of? And I would say this is a good spiritual test. If you worry more about finances than departing from evil and doing good, then you're spiritually in the wrong place. And you need to flip that around and see if the worries you have about your finances will evaporate if you worry more about departing from evil and doing good. Also, I would say this. It is a species of practical atheism to believe that we play a zero-sum game with giving. Will the Lord not take care of you when you take care of his people? You know, going back to 2 Corinthians 8 now, verses 14 through 15. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 14 through 15. What we read is, But by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, He that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Can't go too much into the Old Testament there. Um, But what you see here is that the body of Christ, and this is what we are interested in as we think on giving to our brethren, is the body of Christ will find equilibrium or equality. We have to believe that when we have need ourselves, others in the body of Christ will care for us and supply what we ourselves are lacking. You know, part of the joy of being the people of God is knowing that we will be cared for. You know, I had a, a pastor, uh, a prior pastor in another congregation. He said, you know, I can't promise we will take care of everything that you possibly want, right? But I will promise you this. In this congregation, none of you will go hungry, right? There is a, a sense in which we as the people of God are going to care for one another. And, and this is what we have to hold on to by faith. This is part of the joy of being the people of God. And you remember there are other promises as well, that God promises you, believer, to care for the liberal soul, right? Proverbs eleven twenty five uh, and 26, the liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. We have to believe these things by faith, that our giving is not a zero-sum game. Well, I, I've just lost X amount of dollars out of my bank account that I will never get again. No, what we believe by faith is that in some way the blessing of the Lord will come. Whether it is in the bank account or not is immaterial. In some way the Lord will shine his face upon us and I will always be taken care of the Lord if I am not prodigal, but I am generous. Also to guard yourself from being austere, remember what Solomon said, that a love of silver and gold will never ever satisfy you. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. You will never feel like you have enough if you believe that your security is in your bank account. You will never be satisfied. That is why we have billionaires working to be trillionaires. You cannot be satisfied with these things. But you are satisfied when you know that you are loved and have loved God and have loved his people instead of silver. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, use your wealth, what? To make heavenly friends. Luke 16, 9. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. You know, I have to be careful in how I say these things. But there have been, because my giving is to be secret, but as I think on how to preach these things, I have in times past done very small things for believers and brethren just to help one in need, even things that are just routine things. 
that in, in some ways have caused friendships that are eternal, a small amount of money even, not anything significant. And now they constantly are praying for me. They're constantly thinking on me and showing me love and blessing in all other ways. They don't repay me materially. But I say, the Lord is true. It is far better to give than to receive. So that encouragement, let us consider, lastly, the practice of the church. And we'll consider that briefly. So we see there is a need to consider other churches that are in need. And whether these, and when these churches have been identified either by direct appeal or by observation, we are to consider how we might give them aid. Going back to the word in Acts 11 that I had cited for you in 29 and 30, we hear of how this collection was undertaken. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The first thing we note is that every man gave according to his ability. And in this, we have to be clear, right? We cannot give to all needs, and we cannot give to them all equally, right? Some of us, and I think this is a good practice, we, you know, we set a budget for our tithe. We also set a budget for charitable giving. And that's a good idea too. That on top of our normal regular giving, we allocate so that we always might have something to give to those in need. So that according to our ability, we can be generous when a need arises. But all of us should do that as we are able. You're not called to neglect your family's own needs when you give to others, right? But you also, the tension there is you don't squander and hoard what you do have. And this load ought to be distributed over many and not a few. We're also not to take on debt to care for others, but to spread the load over many. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 12 and 13. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened. And this is why the appeal is coming to you as a congregation. And the Christian church is not to go to the wealthy donors or to go to certain people all the time as individuals. That a few people would not be overburdened with the the task of helping. And I think there's a general principle here as well. You know, some of you um, may be very generous And oftentimes you have a reputation for generosity that comes into the church. And because you have a giving heart, you might well bear the burden of giving all on your own. And that's improper according to the word of God here. And that can often sour you on giving to others as well. And don't let that happen, brethren. Uh, I would say that if people are coming to you constantly for aid, right? And I'm not saying that they're wrong in needing aid or anything like that. I would just implore you to let the elders of the congregation know, or deacons rather, when we have deacons, God willing, one day, uh, when needs arise. That way the load can be better distributed over many and not just a few. And sometimes there are things that you might even be unaware of that a person is struggling and the deacons might actually say, this person doesn't need financial help. They need help in these other ways. And money is actually just going to exacerbate the problem. And so you note here that the church was involved in the distribution of the gifts. In Acts 11, it was through Barnabas and Saul to the elders in Jerusalem who received the gifts. Right, And it is the elders in Jerusalem who would have distributed the gifts as necessary. But even in Acts 11, you notice there's a plurality of men who are involved in the distribution. Barnabas and Saul, not uh, alone, but together. And you notice this if you're here after services. We have two men always counting the offerings. Right, That way there can be accountability. There needs to be accountability in the church. And that's another reason to do our giving through the church. Because with the handling of finances, given all the pitfalls and temptations in handling money, it is necessary to have accountability. In the churches of our denomination, for instance, we have uh, yearly financial audits. Our books are audited, they're sent to presbytery, and we keep track as a session, um, and the deacons court will do this one day when we have deacons, of who received funds and, uh, and how these funds are allocated. And so... 
in, in this way, you see even in the primitive church here, it is through the elders that these gifts go through and are received by the church. And we ask ourselves the question then, it, we need to ask ourselves, you know, have the elders looked on this need for these other churches and are these things that we ought to give to? Or does this congregation need to do some belt tightening Instead, maybe they need to do some things to get their finances in order. This is why it's good to always have the church involved when it comes to the giving and distribution of aid. And that's the apostolic example. And so over the next two Lord's Days, we will take up a collection for the saints in Grandview. And again, this is not compulsory giving. We want those who give to give freely out of the grace that the Lord has bestowed to them. This is just an opportunity to be spiritually exercised and to give to our brethren in need. But regardless of this particular need, what I want to do is lay before you this text so that you can see outside of this specific need how we are to treat our giving and our care for our brethren. And so our text ends in verse 24. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. As they say, talk is cheap. Love is demonstrated, not just financially, in many manifold ways, as you've heard in the marriage series. What the apostle says is prove your love. Prove your love to God. Prove your love to Christ. Prove your love to the church of Jesus Christ. Prove that the boasting that is made of congregations like ours and the graces that we believe are operative in the people of God here are in fact real and based on the reality of the Spirit's presence in our midst. Ultimately, do it for thanksgiving, for all the riches that you have in Christ that are freely given to you. For in him you possess and will inherit all that is God's. And your life is secure in his hands, believer. Your life is not secure in the bank account. And so may God help us with the spirit of liberality to the churches of God. Amen. Please rise for prayer if you are able. Our Father and our God, perhaps no knowledge staggers us more than to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. We thank you that there is something of the gospel in every duty that we have before thee, O Lord, that whatever it is that confronts us in the law of God, here we find uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ convicting us and giving us great joy that we have such a Savior as this. Help us to know that we are the richest people of all in the earth. Help us to give freely, that as freely we have received, freely we shall give. Father, um, whether or not it is to the saints of Grandview in some ways is immaterial, but help us to be generous to our brethren, uh, beyond just even the giving here to the local congregation, but uh, wherever Christ uh, and his people have a need, Help us to keep our eyes open, our ears sharpened to the needs of thy people, knowing that whatever we do for the least of these, our brethren, we are doing it for our Savior, who has done so much for us, that we would now live to please the one who died for us and gave himself for us, that the life that we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us do these things, Father, to the glory of God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.